Wheeler yesterday uh, about the uh, soccer ministry, and uh, that was exciting to hear of the opportunities that you have there, and uh, particularly interesting to me because this month I mark, I won't say celebrate, but I mark 30 years as a chaplain of uh, a league club uh, in Britain. Uh, I usually visit on a Tuesday and a Friday morning just for an hour or two and just do my rounds and talk with uh, players and staff and so on and uh, build relationships there and take opportunities to be able to share uh, the gospel with them. And so it's interesting to hear of work that's done um, in soccer, you call it, of course. Uh, I call it football, and then it's confusing if I refer to football, but um, I'm clued up enough now to refer to it as soccer. So uh, we know what we're talking about. Well, we're going to continue uh, with um, the passage that we began to look at last Wednesday evening, 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. In a sense, it's a rather strange uh, passage. Certainly, it would be considered very strange by those who are outside of the Christian church and the Christian faith, uh, because here is a man who is... Uh, in the heading that I have in my Bible at the head of the chapter, longing for heaven. Here is a man who can say in verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now that is not usually the philosophy of the world out there. So this is the passage that we're looking at and we'll read uh, the first ten verses. It's Paul, of course, who's writing. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts this evening. I began last week by endeavoring to make clear that Paul was a man who was living on the brink of death. It was something that he had to face every day of his life. There were the Jews who hated him. There were the Gentiles who hated him. And in addition to all of that, of course, He had to encounter, as he tells us in some of his letters, uh, hazards from his travels and from the conditions that he had to face. 
but mostly it was the hostility of those who were against his faith and against his message. And he knew that death could take him any day. He wants the Corinthians to know how he deals with that possibility. The answer is found in verses 6 and 8. And the key word in both of these verses is the word confident. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And we notice that the verb confident means to be cheerful. It means to have joy, to have happiness, to be content. And what Paul is telling us is that this is how he was able to face death. Confidently, contentedly, joyfully, patiently, peaceably. In fact, he says very clearly that he prefers death to life. Not because he has some terminal disease that he wants to escape, simply that he cannot bear to be away from his Lord. And that's an amazing way to be able to live your life. You will know, of course, that in writing his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Far better, he says, to depart and to be with Christ. Some years ago, a friend of mine in Britain uh, had to go into hospital for some tests. And after they had completed the tests, uh, the doctor came to him and said, um, I'm sorry, Mr. Stanbury, uh, you won't be going home. And my friend Dennis looked at him and said, oh, yes, I will. <laughs> and that is the way every Christian should be able to face death. It's the ultimate test of our faith. And Paul had the kind of faith that was strong in life and strong in death. He finished well. He died with hope. He died with joy. Indeed, don't these words suggest that he died with eagerness? And he left behind, therefore, a tremendous witness to the integrity of his faith and his confidence in the truth of God's word. God is honored when his people die triumphantly. He is honored when they are confident in the face of death. And certainly our last and perhaps our best witness to the love and the devotion that we have for our Lord is seen in the way in which we die. One Bible teacher expresses it very graphically in these words. If we don't groan for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for drink, a poor man longs for his payday, and a soldier longs for peace, then something is wrong. If we don't face death with joy and with anticipation, not the pain and the suffering necessarily that's associated with it, but death itself, if we don't face it with joy and anticipation, then we have come to idolize this passing world. We've come to settle for fading joys. We've learned to be content 
with sinful surroundings, to accept and cherish our fallenness, and to overestimate earthly relationships. And honestly, we haven't set our affections on things above, but on things on the earth. And so Paul faces death confidently. Any day could be his last. Never caused him to compromise his message for one moment. Because, you see, for him, death was no threat. I was listening to a radio uh, teacher uh, this week, and uh, he was speaking of uh, somebody that I also have had the privilege of meeting, Joseph Ton, uh, from uh, one of the Eastern European countries, and a man who uh, became a focal point uh, as far as the communists were concerned during those very difficult days. And they tried to threaten him because of a letter that he had written. And they wanted him to withdraw the letter. And he refused and said, well, your ultimate weapon is killing. He said, my ultimate weapon is dying. He said, and uh, so, um, you know, do what you will. And they realized that he was actually more dangerous dead <laughs> because of his testimony than he was alive. And so actually uh, he was able uh, to be freed. And in fact, I think spent uh, a number of years over here uh, in the United States. Death was no threat to him. Death was no threat to Paul. Death would take Paul where he would rather be and make him what he would rather become. And so the reality of death, the threat of death, never affected his boldness. It never affected his courage. In fact, if anything... It only excited it because he wanted to die because he'd rather, to be in, rather be in heaven and be with Christ. He had no obsession to escape death. He said as he came toward the end of his life, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, in these verses that we've read together, Paul gives us four reasons for his preference to die rather than to live. And last week in the first, we saw from verse 1, the first reason was the anticipation of a next body. The anticipation of the next body. And what he told us is that we will be going from a tent to a building. We're going to go from something that is part of this creation to something that is not, in the words that he uses, a house not made with hands. That is, a phrase that refers to something not of this creation. We're going to go from something which is passing to something which is eternal in the heavens. The resurrection body of which Jesus Christ is the prototype. And Paul says, when I look forward to that day, then I would prefer death to life. Now, the second reason that he longs for heaven is the anticipation of the next life. The anticipation of the next life. And it's verses 2 to 4. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, I think the key word to understanding those verses is in the very last word, the word life. 
What Paul wanted was life, real life or eternal life. That's what life there means. He wanted that which is mortal, at the end of verse 4, to be swallowed up in the fullness of the perfections of eternal life. That was what he was after. He wanted the full richness of eternal life, which God prepares for his own. Now if we go back to verse 2, we'll see how this unfolds. Meanwhile, he says, we groan. What he's saying is, we're uncomfortable in this body. There is a certain kind of misery in this body. We are unfulfilled, we're incomplete, we are imperfect, and we ache and we sigh and we yearn for the next life, that this mortal may be swallowed up by that which is immortal, incorruptible, and eternal. He's weary of the frustrations of this life, the disappointments, the limitations, the weakness, the sins. He wants to be free from all of that. And because of that, he says we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Paul says, when I put that on, I'll no longer feel naked because He didn't yet possess his heavenly body, and therefore he does feel naked. That's the point that he's making. And the life that he's looking forward to is not an existence as a disembodied spirit floating around in infinity, but that life that is tied to that resurrection body that he's already referred to. Now, I mentioned last week, and I mention again, uh, we think of the culture and we think of the belief of the Greeks and of course Paul is writing to Greeks, he's writing to the Corinthians bodily resurrection to the average Greek was anathema anything to do with the body was evil and that's why they could not accept that the God that we worship created the world because the world is physical Material, And so they invented a wicked deity who was actually responsible for creating the world. And as I said last week, nor could they accept a real incarnation of Christ for the very same reason. And Paul deals with this issue in his first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 15. He emphasizes, we noticed last week, the bodily resurrection of Christ... And therefore, the bodily resurrection, notice I say the bodily resurrection of the believer... But it seems that he needs to deal with it here again. So that Paul is not simply looking for uh, what some suggest as an alternative, the release of the spirit from the body. He was looking for the next body, one that was perfect in the perfections of immortality. Now, of course, uh, I believe that Paul is still waiting for that body. For the glorified body, of course, comes to us uh, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think that any of our brothers and sisters who are in glory are uh, frustrated. Uh, 2,000 years, at least, has passed. and They're not sort of there saying, well, when's it going to happen? Uh, They're in eternity. In that sense, they're not even calendar watching, let alone clock watching. But there is a sense, and having even said that, there is a sense in which there is yet something still to happen. You see? 
And we have an illustration of this in Revelation 6.10, where the souls of the martyrs call out, How long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And they're told to wait a little longer. There's an anticipation, as there is here with Paul. There's an anticipation that something has yet to be fulfilled. So Paul is saying, look, we want to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We want to put it on so that we won't be found naked. He wanted that glorified body which would bring him into the perfection that was like his Lord, the risen Lord. So believers are not satisfied with the redemption of the soul. We long for the body, which is the image of Jesus Christ, the fullness of the next existence. St. Augustine wrote, we are burdened with this corruptible body. But knowing that the cause of this burdensome is not the nature and substance of the body, but its corruption, we therefore do not desire to be deprived of the body, but to be clothed with its immortality. We are intended forever to possess a body through which we can glorify God. And Paul is saying very simply, I'll not be satisfied until it comes. The anticipation of the next body, the anticipation of the next life, and then the third reason that Paul prefers death to life is the anticipation of the next existence. Verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Paul knew that this next existence actually fulfilled God's purpose for him. What is the future for believers is prepared by God. It started, of course, in eternity past. He made a covenant with his son, and that purpose of God is not fulfilled until we get to heaven. God made us for this very purpose. It's very emphatic. What is the purpose? He's talking about the resurrection of the body. Now, you're very familiar with the words from Romans 8.28, of course. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul is telling us that God makes everything work together. Why? Because God has a purpose, and he has to make everything work together to achieve that purpose. And what is the purpose? Very next verse, verse 29. That we might be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Now, to be made like Jesus Christ, you would have to have a glorified body, as well as a perfectly holy nature, because Christ is perfectly holy. And he has a glorified, resurrected body. So to be made like Christ is God's purpose. And that is why, friends, everything in your life and everything in my life as Christians works for good. Not that everything in your life and my life is good. It works for good. You see, there are things in our lives that are positively evil. They are. I don't mean the things that you do, I mean the things that happen to you. Disease and death and so on. But in a remarkable way, God is able to take all of those things. I think it was one commentator who said, the good use of bad things. That's what God is able to do. 
the good use of bad things to fulfill this purpose that we might be made like Christ. Well, what about this life? Well, I think we should use every ability that God has given us. Become all that we can possibly be. Make whatever contribution that we can to the richness of life here. Do good to all men through the skills that we have and the effort that we make. And as a Christian, be the best at what you try to do. But when you've done your very best, recognize that that is a pittance compared to what God is going to make you into when glory appears. His purpose is so vastly beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. Now, how do we know this? Because, says Paul, verse 5, God has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Each believer has the presence of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee of God's ultimate purpose. Because what God begins, he finishes. He who began a good work in you, says the Apostle to the Philippians, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now here in Corinthians 5, when Paul uses the word for guarantee or pledge, the Greek word is the word arabon. And if you and I were to go to Greece today and meet an engaged lady and ask to see her arabon, then she would put out her hand with an engagement ring on it. And in modern Greek, that is what the word means. But in ancient Greece, an arabon had to do with property. It was a non-returnable down payment on a piece of property that was going to be completely purchased later on. A contract was made, and because it involved property, the purchaser gave a non-returnable deposit, a down payment, an arabon, to the, to the person that he was purchasing from. Now, if the buyer, who had put down the deposit, did not follow through on the full purchase price, then the owner kept the arabon. It was a non-returnable deposit. Paul is actually underlining something here that he's already told them. Back in chapter 1 and verses 21 and 22, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When he writes to the Ephesian believers, he says in chapter 1, You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, here it comes again, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That's why you and I believe in eternal security. With those verses before us, how could we possibly feel uh, that, uh, well, you know, we could lose our salvation? The Spirit is there, 
says Paul, in each of those cases, the Spirit is there as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, guaranteeing our inheritance. And of course, if it doesn't happen, whose glory is it that's going to be diminished? God's. It would detract from his glory because he was not able to complete what he set out to do. But the culmination of God's plan in redemption. Thank you so much. Thank you. We had to pay a visit to CVS Pharmacy a few days ago because I just had a kind of feeling that something was coming. And uh, so I got an oral spray and it's, it's done the trick. Uh, praise the Lord. I just wondered with all of the engagements at the end of our trip that I uh, mightn't be able to complete them. But thank you. I appreciate your thoughtfulness. Paul says... I can look at death confidently, not only because of the next body, and that's the best one, not only because of the next life, because that's perfect, but because the next existence fulfills God's purpose for my life. That's why I was made. And then the fourth reason why he faces death confidently is the anticipation of the next dwelling. Verses 6 to 8. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, a new body is one thing. And a new life. And the fulfillment of God's purpose for that life. All of those are wonderful uh, ambitions. Wonderful things to rejoice in. Wonderful things to give us assurance for the future. But, says the Apostle, the greatest reason he prefers death to life is because he wants to be with his Lord. So doesn't Paul love his family and doesn't he love his friends? Yes, of course he does. He expresses that love through his letters. But he loves his Lord even more. Who do you and I love the most? You see, this is not written at an emotional high point in his life. Uh, not even at an emotional low point in his life. He says, we are always confident. It's a settled condition for the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, Paul had contact with his Lord... Just as we do. Christ is with us by his spirit. We communicate with him through prayer. He's promised that he will not forsake us. There is a sense in which uh, we are with Christ and yet we are separated from him. And that's why Paul says, uh, as we see from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the best part and so will we be with the Lord forever. One commentator calls it heavenly homesickness. And it's in Revelation, of course, that we find so much about heaven. In chapter 21 and verse 3, John tells us the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. 
And again in the same verse, he will live with them. And again, and God himself will live with them. And then down in the same chapter, verse 21 and verse 23, he says a similar thing. And the lamb will be there and God will be there. And then in the next chapter, chapter 22, as John describes the city, he says in verse 3 that God will be there and the lamb will be there. Heaven is where we have intimate fellowship without separation in the presence of God and the lamb. Now, at this point, he adds, we live by faith not by sight. And that explains how he and you and I can live and serve an invisible God. How we can hope for an invisible place, a place that we can't even see because we do it by faith. It's not a vague superstition. We believe and we live by that belief. It's not a belief in nothing. It's a belief in the word of God that tells us all of this. We believe in the word of God that tells us about heaven. We believe in the word of God that tells us about a resurrection. And we believe in the word of God that tells us about a resurrection body. But we still don't know very much about heaven. Some of the writers in the Bible give us some information, but beyond that, it is down to faith in God's promises. He has told us that heaven is a better place and we believe him. And so we live by faith, faith in the word of God. And on that basis, Paul says, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's homesick. Now, I imagine all of you have experienced that at some time or another in your life. In 44 years of itinerant ministry, I've felt it many times. You just want to get home because there is no place like home. You can write letters. You can make phone calls, but there's nothing to compare with being at home and being with them. Now, uh, my communication with the Lord is through letters and phone calls. I have the letter in the word and the phone calls are prayer. But of course, if we had our choice, we'd like to be with him. And that's what Paul is saying. I'd rather be there. Nothing in this world can match that. The psalmist tells us in a lovely little verse, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And if it's precious to him, then it should be precious to us. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I've always looked at that phrase and wondered quite what the Lord meant by it, uh, because here is the one who could speak in the day of creation and things were done. And he says, I'm going to prepare. Uh, what I do hold on to in that lovely little phrase is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, when you uh, decorate a room for someone special, you make it just like they would want it to be. And that's what I take away from that little phrase. I can't understand how he's gone to prepare something, but I can understand that he's gone to prepare it for me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You see, all of these verses that I've just quoted, all of these verses are about being where he is. Now, do you love him enough to be homesick 
to be where he is. A new body, perfection, fulfillment, communion without interruption in the presence of God and Christ. That's what gave Paul the confidence that he had in dying. C.H. Spurgeon, the Baptist uh, preacher, said, The best moment of a Christian's life is his last one, because it's the one that's nearest heaven. Well, we understand what he means by that. Well, now, just as we close, we've had all this talk about anticipating heaven and so on and so forth. And I suppose there might be the thinking, well, we'll just go out from this evening floating on air and, uh, you know, of, of so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. And the Apostle Paul was certainly not like that. So we're going to look at verse 9. So he says, we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Paul wasn't overly concerned about pleasing other people, but he was very concerned about pleasing his Lord. He told the Galatians, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, I can't do both. My focus is to please God. And that is the basic principle of Christian living. You do whatever you do to please the Lord. That has to be the prime objective. And Paul is saying here, so, therefore, that's what the word means, so, therefore, whether I live or I die, my ambition will always be to please him. He's saying if I have to stay here, well, I'll stay. If I have to die, I'm very willing to die. But in either case, it's not going to change my ambition. Maybe Paul needed to say that because someone might say, Paul, you're so taken up with leaving this world that you might become disinterested in living in this world and what the Lord has put you here to do. But Paul's longings for what was to come in heavenly glory did not make him indifferent to this life. In fact, in fact, we shall see, it made him all the more careful about how he lived this life. He knew that his present body was a vehicle by which he could do things and serve God in such a way that would bring him an eternal reward. Several years ago, uh, back in Britain, there was a sitcom on television. It was supposed to be a comedy, it wasn't very funny. Uh, but it was a sitcom called God's Waiting Room. And it uh, took place um, in an old people's home. And you had a bunch of elderly people there waiting to die. It was a comedy program, but um, as I say, there weren't many laughs there. But people have often used that little phrase, haven't they? Uh, of when you reach a certain age, you're in God's waiting room. Paul didn't believe in any kind of God's waiting room where you remain unoccupied, inactive, and unused until he calls us home. His desire to please Christ was unaffected by life or by death, whether he was alive or dead in the body and waiting for his resurrection body. He said, he wrote to the Romans and said, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. When he wrote to the Philippians, he said, 
His desire was that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Because, he says, there is to be accountability. Listen carefully. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice we must all appear. We're all going to be there. It's comprehensive. It is inevitable. We know that this is not a judgment of sin. Because if we are a believer, for us, that's already been dealt with at the cross. Sin is not the issue. But the issue are those things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the word translated bad there, I understand, is a little misleading. Because the word does not actually mean morally evil. It's a word that simply means worthless. Useless. What have you and I done while in the body that has eternal value? That's the challenge. Now, Paul can explain what he means. In his first epistle, in chapter 3, he wrote these familiar words. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now let me tell you right away, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It just means you have to realize that some of the things that you and I do don't have eternal consequences. Um, I don't play golf, and uh, maybe it's uh, out of... Um, uh, it's a bit unkind for me to mention golf, but I mean, you play a round of golf, and uh, uh, if you didn't have a conversation with someone and so on, you might have to say something like that did not have eternal consequences but you see the Lord has given us so many things to enjoy and it's not wrong that we enjoy them the important thing is that we lay emphasis on those things that have eternal value so it's in that sense that something is good and it's in the other sense that something is worthless it doesn't actually have eternal value so the point is simply this. Paul says, what motivates me is there's a day coming when I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to take, as it were, all of the stuff of my life, all the activities of my life, and he's just going to burn away all that is of no eternal value. And it's what remains, the gold, the silver, the costly stones. That is the substance of my eternal reward. Whatever has lasting value, that's what we will be rewarded for. So Paul says, I'm ambitious. Oh yes, I'm longing for heaven. Yes, I would like to be in the presence of Christ. 
But that doesn't make me irresponsible while I'm here on earth. Rather, it motivates me. Because my heaven, in some measure, is going to be determined by how I live my life right here. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. There can be no nobler ambition. May God keep us faithful in our service for him day by day until that day when he calls us home. Now I just want to close by quoting a hymn. The remarkable thing is that this hymn was written by a lady by the name of Elizabeth Mills. And Elizabeth Mills wrote these words a few weeks before her death at the age of 24. These are the words we speak of the realms of the blessed. That country so bright and so fair. And oft are its glories confessed. But what must it be to be there? We speak of the pathway of gold, its walls decked with jewels so rare, its wonders and pleasures untold. But what must it be to be there? We speak of its freedom from sin, from sorrow, temptation and care, from trials without and within. But what must it be to be there? We speak of its service of love, of the robes which the glorified wear, of the church of the firstborn above. But what must it be to be there? Our mourning is all at an end, when raised by the life-giving word, we see the new city descend, adorned as a bride for her Lord. The city so holy and clean, no sorrow can breathe in the air, no gloom of affliction or sin, no shadow of evil is there. Do thou, midst temptation and woe, for heaven my spirit prepare. And shortly, I also shall know and feel what it is to be there. Then o'er the bright fields we shall roam in glory celestial and fair, with saints and with angels at home. And Jesus himself will be there. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you that your word excites us this evening. We thank you that you so inspired your servant to pen these words that bring to us 2,000 years later such assurance and confidence. In light of the fact that perhaps we may all have to pass this way. And so we pray that whoever we are and whatever age we might be, that we will always have that confidence in what you've prepared for those who love you. But we pray too that your word will come to us as a challenge this evening, recognizing that you have given us these lives and we are to be good stewards of them. And so we pray that you will help us 
to be involved in doing those things that will bring eternal reward, not simply because we are looking for eternal reward, but because we are looking for that which through our lives will glorify you. So apply your word to our hearts this evening. By your spirit, we pray. Help us to remember and retain and put into practice those things that are from you. Help us to dismiss and to forget those things uh, that are not of you. And we ask our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.